Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. So we've got an ambitious and competitive yet grounded PhD researcher with us today. She's none other than Laura Hallward. Laura, please introduce yourself to the audience and of course, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So as Jeremy said, my name is Laura. I am currently a PhD candidate in the Kinesiology Sciences program at McGill. Specifically, I'm studying exercise and health psychology and my research is focusing on better understanding experiences around compulsive exercise with people living with eating disorders. So most of my research involves speaking to people with compulsive exercise and an eating disorder, and also exploring how these topics are discussed on social media. I really hope to continue my research in this area just to create more awareness and also hopefully find solutions to promote lifelong healthy engagement in exercise for everyone. Awesome. That is a great goal for your graduate research. <laughs> Perhaps a little ambitious, but maybe that aligns just exactly with who I am. It does. It's amazing. I love the internal consistency there. So thank you for being here today. I'm very excited to hop into things right away. So you are studying, I guess, kind of two things broadly, compulsive exercise and also disordered eating. So first, let's kind of just define what those are so we have a solid foundation to build off of. So I'll start off with perhaps the easier one, disordered eating or eating disorders. Eating disorders is a clinical mental disorder. It's in the diagnostic manual. It has anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa. It has binge eating disorder, as well as a couple other ones. For people then that don't necessarily meet that clinical threshold, you might call it disordered eating. This could be people that have an unhealthy relationship with food. It could be people that are jumping from diet to diet, people that are fearful of certain types of food. Um, so that sort of sums up disordered eating. And then on the flip side, we have compulsive exercise. Now, that's a largely debated term. There are many other terms that people use to describe that. You could think of excessive exercise exercise addiction, exercise dependence. It just depends on who you are and what you want to call it. I like the term compulsive exercise. It aligns with this obsessive or compulsive need to exercise to such an extreme that you're working out even if you're injured, even if you're tired, even if you're not enjoying it. You're following these rigid rules and these obsessions that you maybe have to do it every day at the same time for the same duration of time it comes to the point where it's interfering with your daily activities, your job, your social life. You just prioritize exercise over almost everything else. That's sort of, I guess, where you get the idea of addiction and dependence, where you're so dependent on exercise to cope and to, to lose weight. It's used for a number of different reasons, depending on who you are. Yeah, wow. So that already opens up like a whole world of discussion points. The way you describe compulsive exercise does sound like it's intimately related to a different disorder known as OCD. Do we see uh, compulsive exercise occurring in cases of OCD? And maybe you could just tell us a bit about what that is. 
Definitely. So obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, obviously has to do with sort of obsessive rituals and tendencies and exercise sometimes can be that for people. So there definitely is an overlap. Sometimes people do present with both OCD and compulsive exercise. In the literature, in terms of how they're trying to understand compulsive exercise, some people do compare it to OCD and think maybe it should fall within that category in the diagnostic manual, because right now it's not in the DSM. People don't really know where to put it, where to classify it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, as I said, some people compare it to OCD, some people compare it to a substance disorder or substance dependence. Again, just depends on who you are, but there's definitely a lot of parallels you can draw between OCD and compulsive exercise. I mean, so this wouldn't be the first time that we discuss the kind of gray areas that we have in psychology between yes. actually, uh, you know, describing a particular disorder and um, diagnosing, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm always very, you know, weary to diagnose myself with various things. We're living in a time where it's easy to Google various disorders and say, oh, it looks like I fit some of those criteria. I mean, e even just in your description of... Um, an eating disorder, you mentioned fear of food. I didn't actually know that that would constitute one of the criteria for an eating disorder. I personally had an experience a, a couple of years ago where I had to have someone perform the Heimlich maneuver because I was choking on spaghetti, among other, th among other foods in my mouth at that time. And since then, I have not, I have not eaten any long noodle because of a fear of that food. Now, maybe that one criterion is not enough to actually diagnose me with something further. But I, I still found that very interesting. I'd never heard of that before. Definitely would not be enough to diagnose you at that point. The fear of the food is because of choking and potentially not breathing and potentially passing away. Whereas fear of food when it comes to disordered eating is a fear of weight gain, a fear of how your body might react, a fear of bloating if it's a high sodium mm -hmm. or eating dessert, it's going to cause you to lose control or something okay. a little bit more related to your appearance and how you feel and less about a near-death experience. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Again, I'm, I'm not here to get a, like a therapy session on uh, you know figuring out what I do and do not have as far as disorders are concerned, but I appreciate that. I just wanted to share a bit about my experience with these kinds of things. So... Presumably there's kind of this like multi-step or multi-part process of going through like actually developing this disorder. Then there's the whole living with the disorder and ideally eventually recovering and treatment. So let's maybe kind of run through how that works for each of these, like how the typical patient might come to present and how we kind of guide them through this process. Mm -hmm. Of course, just want to acknowledge it can appear differently and so many different people can start for so many different reasons. I think ultimately in your traditional average case, people start exercising as a means to lose weight, to manipulate their body, to tone up or lose some fat. You know, we're not just talking about cardio and treadmills. We might be talking also about weights and resistance training. So exercise can do multiple things for your body. So typically people invest in exercise for weight control. There's also the idea that exercise is really good for your mental health, for stress release, to cope with negative emotions and sort of get out of your head, you know, go for a run, clear your mind. It feels mm -hmm. good. Yeah. So often people start exercising with great intentions Probably one or two of those are the reasons why. 
that starts to slowly develop into sort of darker side. I think it's a very gradual progression. I don't think you just wake up one morning and this is how I have to exercise. I'm sort of addicted to it now and it's compulsive. I think it starts to build slowly over time where you realize that maybe your body is changing and you're really starting to like this. So you keep going and thinking, if I don't work out today, I'm going to gain weight or I'm not going to look good. So I have to do this every day. Or it becomes the only way people can cope with negative emotions. Every time they're stressed, every time something pops up that they can't handle, they exercise. So it just becomes Mm -hmm. this almost like soul coping mechanism that people can use and rely on. And throughout this time, there's usually people praising you, congratulating you. You're losing (laughs) weight. You're exercising. You're taking care of yourself. This is so great. Because so well, most of... people can't actually even motivate themselves to exercise in the first place. So it's, it's, this, it's this tricky thing where too much of a good thing ends up becoming a bad thing. Exactly. I don't think yeah. people realize exercise can be unhealthy. But here I would say compulsive exercise is unhealthy. So here people are working out like crazy. And often alongside this compulsive exercise comes disordered eating or comes an eating disorder. Because as people are trying to manipulate their weight, manipulate their body, typically that also starts to trickle into food and how you eat and what you're putting into your body. So those two sort of are very hand in hand and very common, hence why I'm studying both eating disorders and compulsive exercise. I would imagine it would be tough to actually only study one. Exactly. They're so highly comorbid. They're so highly co-occurring at the same time. Mm -hmm. Which then comes to the issues with how do we get out of this compulsive exercise? Often, as I said, it comes with an eating disorder. So clinicians and treatment and healthcare providers, they like to treat the eating disorder. That's what they've been trained to do and that's what they can't acknowledge and they've been taught how to, how to treat it. When it comes to compulsive exercise, clinicians don't really know what to do. For the Mm -hmm. most part, they ignore it. They tell you, don't exercise during eating disorder recovery. Just go cold turkey. That can lead to people exercising in secret. That can lead to people then not knowing how to get back into exercise. Okay, I stopped for six months, but I Mm want to exercise again. I think it would be good and healthy for my body. But they don't know how. All they know is that compulsive tendency and perhaps the excessive number of hours they were doing beforehand. It's amazing, sorry, it's amazing how much of a flavor of addiction is coming through in the way you're describing this particular disorder. It's it's really, we don't call it exercise addiction, or at least you haven't been referring to it as such, but this compulsion really, even like like when you said exercising in secret, I never would have thought exercise would be something I would have to hide from people, but if, like, knowing that my family, for example, um, our, our, our big like anti-smoking family, if I picked up that habit, that's something that I would have to keep a secret. Mm-hmm. Not that I yeah. am. <laughs> right. That's definitely why there are a cohort of people that do relate it to addiction. What I think is unique is some people sort of also say I have a food addiction, which is typically people that are like binge eaters, where uh-huh. they're just addicted to food and they like to eat large quantities almost out of their control. But then what's unique about 
food and exercise is that those aren't something that you can cut out of your life completely, or at least you shouldn't cut the exercise out completely. Mm -hmm. But you can live without a gambling addiction. You can live without smoking. You can live without um, an alcohol addiction. But you can't live without food, and you shouldn't live without (laughs) exercise. Oh, it's just, it's crazy. The treatment approach is so different. It's like, how do I get people to to do this in a, in a normal manner, in a healthy manner, but without them cutting it out completely. And that's where there's the biggest, the biggest difficulty with the exercise component. Yeah. Oh my God. That, that really is almost like mind bending. Cause when it comes to things that you do not want in your life, there's almost this, this very real sense of accomplishment as you engage in that habit less and less over time. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, we don't want people to exercise. Well, I mean, if you're compulsively exercising, yes, we want you not only to exercise probably less, but also to change your relationship to it as with food. But that is really fascinating that these these two things which you study, understandably now, because they're so fascinating and interrelated, we need them, but moderation here is is really key. Mm-hmm. I think wow. that's why it's it's so difficult to recover. It's you face your fears and you face your challenges all day, every day with food and hunger, but uh-huh. you can't sort of cut it out. So it's just constantly there and something you're working with for a really long time. You know, I feel like part of the issue also, I've gone the sense as you're, as you're describing these kinds of disorders, it sounds like the health system is not really well educated in terms of how to handle these kinds of cases. I think everybody knows that it's that smoking is is detrimental to your body but it's a lot trickier there's a much finer line when it comes to food cuz i could maybe i could eat 3 crowns of broccoli for breakfast and then 6 crowns of broccoli for lunch and 12 for dinner and <laughs> technically nothing's wrong with broccoli i mean I, I might have like an iron overdose if that's possible but at the same time it's not as not as clear that I'm doing something bad to my body as if I was ingesting copious amounts of liquor, for example. Absolutely. And I think diet culture and the way society is right now, it's that it's constantly pushing these messages of exercise, get up, move, eat all your vegetables, or don't eat carbs, don't eat this, don't eat that. So there's so much policing and there's so much information coming at you that you know, healthcare professionals too can get sucked up in that or they don't necessarily get the right training. And then you have patients coming to them too, not realizing something's wrong because society's praising them for something which is Mm -hmm. slightly disordered or very disordered. So it isn't easy to recognize it, to treat it, to address it because a lot of it is almost praised and told to you by society to do it. Like in the case of uh, people who go vegan, for example, if you want to go vegan, there is a very, like, there is in a sense, a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. I know someone who ended up going vegan, power to her, she developed an iron deficiency. So it's incumbent upon us to educate ourselves and figure out how to manage things. And so putting the onus on us makes it a lot more difficult to navigate. Whereas with something like cigarette addiction, there's no, like, if you pick up cigarettes, it's just, it's, it's automatically bad for you and you can do more or you can do less, but it's pretty black and white. Mm-hmm. So in your research, you're tackling this social media component. How 
does social, I mean, I, I think we all have some sense of how social media figures into this, but maybe how is the conversation different or affected by social media compared to out in the real world? And how has social media maybe leveraged uh, positively or negatively in this context? Mm -hmm. I would definitely say that social media can be a positive and a negative thing. When it comes to both eating disorders and compulsive exercise, there's this whole pro eating disorder side of social media where people are encouraging each other to skip meals, to work out, to take skinny photos of themselves and post it as thinspiration for other oh, wow. people to achieve that. And there's also that whole idea of fitspiration where you're posting fitness inspiration photos and you're po having people in bikinis, in sports bras, in short shorts, tight shorts, posting photos of them in their toned bodies, which is creating an unrealistic body ideal. People are sharing videos of what I eat in a day. This is how I work out. You have a lot of young girls, even young adults, boys too, that are following this and thinking, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I get this body. So it just continues to perpetuate this negative influence on people of all ages. On the positive side, there's a huge community of people that are there to support you and help you on your recovery path to answer those questions that maybe the clinicians don't know the answer to of how do I get a healthier relationship with exercise? You know, there are people out there that have managed to recover and find that relationship. So there's lots of people out there that can help and support you. And you definitely are finding both sides of those conversations online on all sorts of social media sites. It just sort of depends which one you come across at any given time. Um, mm -hmm. And the social media platforms are doing the best they can to eradicate and eliminate the pro ED side, the pro eating disorder side. But like the internet, things just get through and it's there no matter what you try to do. I'd like to actually put maybe a couple of links to resources that myself and the listeners could use just to educate ourselves a little bit on both these topics. So those will be available in the description. We can discuss those later. I wanted to bring up uh, something and we maybe circle back for a second. This kind of just came to mind. I was reading a very interesting book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Have you heard of it? I have. So it's a, it's a very good book. It, it doesn't need to be as long as it is. It's a little bit redundant, I will admit, but I really enjoyed it. There was one concept that came up. It was called the quadrant two activity, or there was essentially these, these four quadrants, which were created by this kind of dual dichotomy of urgency and importance. So what do I mean by this? There are four different ways that you can arrange urgency and importance, things that are urgent and important things that are urgent and not important, things that aren't urgent and are important, and things that are neither. And so there's a special quadrant, quadrant two, that the author of this book talks about, which is the non-urgent but important activities. And to me, like healthy eating and exercise are totally quadrant two activities, where you can easily make it through your day eating like garbage, not exercising, wake up the next day and do it all over again, but there is an importance that gets kind of overshadowed by the lack of urgency. How, Laura, can I, can the listeners, can you, can the world take what you are researching, things that you have learned in your research, and apply that in our lives like right now to help focus our minds on the importance 
of these quadrant two activities? It's funny, just I will say this first, that I would argue that this should be an urgent and important uh, topic to address, but I okay. will let it go and we'll go with a quadrant two. No, I mean, by all means, we could, we could say that this needs to shift from quadrant two to quadrant one. I would say globally in terms of, you know, what's going on with the people on the opposite end of the spectrum, the sedentary population, perhaps those that are unhealthy, that we really need to push for healthy eating and exercise. I would say those things are medicine, exercise is medicine. If we really want to reduce the number of comorbid diseases that are happening, cancers, like smoking, all of these things, we need to increase healthy eating and exercise among everybody. I don't have the power to do all of that. I think the government is trying to tackle that across the world, different governments. In terms of what people can do today to try to improve their health and improve healthy eating and increase their exercise to a healthy level or find a good relationship with exercise, a lot of it comes down to this idea of intuitive eating and this idea of which hasn't been coined, this idea of intuitive movement. So intuitive eating, there's a whole book on it. There's 10 principles to do with it. And Mm -hmm. it's really what we should be moving towards. And if you think about a six-year-old child, the way they eat, their relationship to food without their parents' influence and telling them what they can't or can't have, that's the epitome of intuitive eating. Your body will crave vegetables. So if you listen to your body and give it that, it'll be happy. And then sometimes it might crave a dessert and you let your body have it because if you restrict too much of the things you want, you're going to go to the opposite way and you're going to eat an abundance of ice cream, abundance of cookies, chips, whatever you want. So if you find that moderation of I'll have a salad for lunch because that will fuel my body and it's going to feel good. But if I want cookies later, I should be able to have the cookies. So you really try to get in tune with your body What's it asking for? What does it want? How hungry am I? Try to eat when you're hungry. Try to stop when you're full. Go with that sort of mindset, that mantra. When it comes to exercise, you want to think about things that you enjoy, that you have fun doing. If you don't like the treadmill and going to the gym, don't do it. Try to find something that you find fun. Find a group activity. Speaking of group activities, I run a twice daily, six times a week core workout group. We're doing a plank now, working up to a total of five minutes. If working your core sounds like something you'd be interested in doing, I'm going to put a link to sign up to be part of the group in the description of this episode. Find a group activity, go for a walk, get a really good playlist so it really excites you and don't guilt trip yourself into working out. Don't tell yourself, I have to work out because I ate badly last night, or I haven't worked out in five days, I need to work out today. You have to create a better relationship of what would feel good today. Oh, a 20-minute walk would be better than nothing. I'm going to do that. I know I'll feel better after. You're not always going to be motivated. That's not going to happen. But if you think about it as something that it might feel good for your body, you might have fun doing it, get a buddy to go do it with them, that starts to create a better habit and a better relationship so you don't go into this compulsive side, but you're also not necessarily a sedentary person who doesn't do any activity. Awesome. I love it. I just, I realize in previous weeks and episodes, there has been a dearth of real tangible 
change that we can make to our lives based on the research that is happening. And so I wanted to take this opportunity to do exactly that and to draw that connection. You dropped a lot of really interesting terms here. I urge the listeners to check those out themselves. Intuitive eating, you said there's a book. You've said that intuitive movement hasn't yet been coined. If it ever becomes a thing, let this be the moment that we hear you, Laura Hallward, tell us about it. Yes. It should become a thing. Somebody yeah. get on it. If not, reach out to me and help me with you so we can make it happen. Yeah. It's, it's Honestly, I, I'm, I'm fascinated just by those two words put together, and I'd be happy to chat about it as well. The way you spoke about intuitive eating, first of all, I was surprised because when you started talking about how children eat, I was like, oh, she's definitely going to say we shouldn't do that. Because, I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to eat candy. I, I didn't want to eat my fruit. Maybe I was just a special kid. But... Um, I thought that was interesting how kids actually do just naturally tend towards certain foods because of the nutrients that, that they have mm-hmm. and because we, we need them. There is also something that's, that felt kind of similar to the way you described intuitive eating. It, in a weird way, sounded kind of like what people do when they intermittent fast. So with intermittent fasting, there's like a, there's like a specific window of time where you can eat. But from what I know, you can eat whatever you want in that window. And so there's this weird balance of restriction, but also it, tremendous freedom in terms of what you can actually put in your mouth. Yes, but they are completely different. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I don't want to muddy the waters. So, yeah. So I would say that intermittent fasting definitely has this component of restriction. The idea is that because you've restricted your hours that you're eating, you typically wouldn't even be able to get the same number of calories into your body in that eight-hour, six-hour window than if you were eating the entire day, like normal hours. So that's sort of why they say you can eat whatever you want because you probably still won't be eating as much as if you would if you had the entire day to eat from the moment you got up to the moment you went to bed. At the same time, intermittent fasting is sold as a diet or a way to lose weight to control your weight. Mm -hmm. The idea is intuitive eating is supposed to completely reject diet rules, restriction, anything trying to lose weight. It's basically just trying to get you to build and have a normal, quote unquote, normal relationship with food that you're just in tune with your body. You're not following a diet. You don't have rules. We have to make sure they're teased apart, but there's definitely is some overlap, just like there's overlap with intuitive eating with some other diets. But the idea is intuitive eating rejects diets. Excellent. I like that as like a a phrase, intuitive eating rejects diets. Yes. I could sit here and just ask you questions forever, but unfortunately that doesn't fit with the format of the show. <laughs> no. uh, so we're going to have to start closing things off here. I, I do really appreciate the insight that, that you've given today. It's really, really excellent. I'm curious to know, maybe if we could dive into something that's slightly more personal, how do you practice intuitive eating and intuitive movement in your life? Oh, that's a good question. I think like anything, it's a constant work in progress. I don't think there's any falling off track, on track, off track. Some days might be a little less intuitive than other days. But let's go with eating. I really do try to listen to my body. I try to also make sure I'm eating nutrient-dense food, knowing that's going to fill me up and keep me satiated for the day, feeling full and feeling satisfied. But I also allow myself to socialize and go out to restaurants and eat dessert when I want. And <gasps> no, yes, 
Uh, so I, but that's a work in progress. And I think I'm always going to be trying to practice it and sort of question my head, you know, was I really hungry? Did I really need that? Or did I really want that? Was that the right thing to eat? But I'm not going to spend my life trying to break down every second, everything I'm eating, everything I'm putting in my mouth. When it comes to movement, it's trying to listen to my body. If it's exhausted and it's tired, it's probably better that I rest or go for a gentle walk or do a shorter workout. I try to have fun. I really just make sure that when I'm doing a workout, I'm enjoying it. I want to be there. I'm feeling good. I feel great after those types of things to make sure it's clearing my head, but really trying to have some sort of flexibility with it too that I'm not going to fall over tomorrow if I didn't exercise today. If something pops Mm -hmm. up that's more important or more fun, I'll pick that. And that's my priority. So I guess flexibility is really how I would try to describe both the eating and the exercise. Excellent. Flexibility, intuition. It's all great. Yes. Not easy, but worth it. Totally. That's awesome. Okay. Well, Laura, thank you so much for being here. This is great. Love it. Love chatting with you today. There are obviously so many things we didn't get to talk about, which is which is one of the saddest parts about doing this. <laughs> but for those of you who are listening, if you have questions, send them my way. I'm going to put my email at the end of the show. And if we get enough questions together, Laura, we're going to bring you back on. We're going to ask all those questions. Awesome. Would love okay. it. Thank you for having me. Always happy to chat about my research and chat about this. So would love for people to shoot me questions. Amazing. And can I put your contact info directly into the description as well? Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Okay, so thanks again, Laura. Have an awesome day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.